I have to admit, as we move into our, our message this morning, I have to admit that there are many times when there are many times when my reaction is not as it ought to be when dealing with people around. And one of the things that, that gets to me, and you can pray for me on this, although I might, I believe I probably have company. Um, I stop and pump gas in the truck and the car and sit there and put the, the gas nozzle and go and get the, uh, uh, the squeegee and clean the windshields and that sort of thing. And inevitably, a vehicle pulls up. And it's not the vehicle that I notice, but the sounds coming out of the vehicle. You've, you've seen that car. And, and, and my first thought is kind of a, a musical snobbery to think that, that that's, that's not music. So distorted. And, and, and if it was music, how, how are you ever going to discern it? Because I know your eardrums have got to be gone. Because it hurts my eardrums and I'm 20 feet away behind the closed doors. But I, I have to say that, and this is, this is where I have to, have to repent, is my immediate reaction is just absolute and, and abject disgust. This idea that, oh, why? Because, because I don't like it. I don't, I don't like I, I, don't, I don't like standing there and listening. Now, we can talk about noise pollution and all that sort of thing, but it, it all boils down to, I just don't like it. And when it's something that I don't like, well, then I tend to follow the way in a category of, well, that person just needs Jesus. And that's completely based on the assumption that that person doesn't already know Jesus. We can draw immediate conclusions about the folks that we encounter that are so wrong because it's a, it's a life, it's, a, it's actions, it's, it's behavior that's a little different from our experience. Now, I'm not talking about flat-out sinful things, that God's Word is clear about sinful things, but we just look and we say, you know, I don't see how a person who behaves that way, a person who dresses that way, person who uh, engages the world in that way, I just don't see how they could be a Christian. And I have to bow my head. And I have to repent. We see an occasion in Scripture this morning of, of some who have, have, have traveled a long way to deal with Jesus. And they have traveled a long way to deal with Jesus in a very unsympathetic way, a very condemning way a very devious way. Many who have come to find fault with Jesus and to find a way and a reason to get rid of him. This is, this is the true history of our Savior. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? And Jesus said to them, 
Well did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites. For it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and then it's expelled? Thus, Jesus declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. They defile a person. Father, your word is tough, but true. We thank you for it, Lord God. May it shape and mold us, Father. May it refine, may it sand away. The rough edges, Lord, may it take a chisel to all that does not conform to the image of our Savior. Lord, change us this morning as we deal with your word, but most importantly, as your word deals with us. For your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three three things that I want you to see in this text. There, There are three things that I believe we think too little of. I say we think too little of them is we don't give them enough gravity. We don't give them enough weight. We don't really think they have that much bearing or influence. We might give lip service to them, uh, but we don't take them as seriously as ought. What is not, by the way, children, what is not a part of this message is you don't have to wash your hands. This is not a message or a text about hygiene. This is, this is not bottom line about, you know, if you've been out working all day that you should wash your hands before you have dinner. Yes, you should wash your hands before you have dinner. That, that's, that's, that's a good thing. But that's not what this is about. This is about specifically this occasion where these Pharisees and these scribes have come from Jerusalem. It's an audit that has come to take place of the ministry of Jesus. They've heard about what's going on, and they've come to see firsthand. 
and they're beginning to examine and to look. It'd be just like the IRS sending a team to your house to begin going through all of your bank statements, all of you walking with you every day, seeing where you spend all your money, seeing how you talk about your money, seeing how you record the spending of your money, these types of things. It's like having these auditors following you around, only they were not auditing a balance sheet. They were not auditing a checkbook, but they were auditing the behaviors of these disciples and their teacher for the purpose of finding fault. Now, it's one thing to have somebody come to inspect and to look uh, just because it's a good thing to examine and to check things out, but it's altogether different for somebody who shows up dead set on finding fault. And never, never, ever for think that the, the Pharisees and the scribes here in this occasion or others were just simply there observing Jesus from a point of neutrality. They were looking to get him. And they bring up this idea about hand washing. Hand washing is, is where they're, uh, they're, they're getting on Jesus. But, but you need to understand that it goes beyond, like I said, simply hygiene. It was, it was about what was described as the tradition of the elders. At this point, these things had not been written down, but they had been taught and passed from generation to generation. Uh, they would come to be written down, and when they came to be written down, you would find some 187 pages on the right way to wash hands. 187 pages on the right way to make yourself clean. William Barclay, I want to read a, a little description about this and, and about the attitude of those who were there auditing Jesus and, and what they were looking at. William Barclay writes about what was going on. He says, there are definite and there are rigid rules about the washing of hands. Note that this hand washing was not in the interest of hygienic purity. It was ceremonial cleanness that was at stake. Before every meal and between each course, the hands had to be washed and had to be washed in a certain way. The hands, to begin with, had to be free of any coating of sand or mortar or gravel or any such substance. The water for washing had to be kept in special large stone jars so that the water itself was clean in a ceremonial sense and that it might be certain that it had not been used for any other purpose. Nothing had fallen into it and they had to make sure that nothing had been mixed with it. So first, the hands would be held with fingertips pointed upwards and water was poured over them and it had to run down at least to the wrist. The minimum amount of water was one quarter of a log, which is equal to one and a half eggshells full of water. And while the hands were still wet, each hand had to be cleansed with the fist of the other. That is what the phrase was about when it says in verse 3, when it talks about the, uh, the fist. The fist of one hand was rubbed into the palm and against the other. And this meant that at this stage, the hands were wet with water and the water was now unclean because it had touched the unclean hands. So next, the hands had to be held with fingertips pointed downwards and the water had to be poured over them in such a way that it began at the wrist and ran off the fingertips. And all this had to be done. And afterwards, the hands were clean. Now, to fail to do this, Barclay considers, was in the Jewish eyes not to be ill-mannered. To not do this was not to be having bad manners. It was to not be dirty. It wasn't that you're dealing with a health sense about being dirty. But to fail to do this, they taught, was to be unclean in the sight of God. Anyone who ate with unclean hands was subject to attacks of the devil. To omit to do so would be liable to come to poverty and destruction. 
Bread eaten with unclean hands was considered no better than waste and excrement. A rabbi who once omitted the ceremony was buried, having been excommunicated. Another rabbi was imprisoned by the Romans, and he used the water given to him for hand-washing rather than for drinking. In the end, he nearly died of thirst because he was determined to observe the rules of cleanliness rather than satisfy his own thirst. This, to the Pharisee and to the scribe, was religion. Now, I read that and I belabor that point because it was a ritual and a ceremonial religion saying that if you don't do this, you are not clean before God. And that's what they're saying. It's like, ooh, they weren't looking at the disciples and saying, ooh, you guys are gross. You need to wash those hands. I've seen where you've been. That's not what they were saying. What they were saying is God cannot be pleased with you because you are not doing what you're supposed to do. And that's what's loaded in this question when they look at Jesus and they, they say, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? I said there are three things that we don't give enough weight. There are three things that we don't think strongly enough about. And the first is the word of God. This indicates a lack of the gravity of the word of God in the lives of his people. We throw around a word a lot when we talk about behavior. When we talk about the way people should behave and live, and if we speak to that, very very quickly, men and women will run to this label, and they'll throw it out there. And they'll use it like, like the worst word they could say of you. Legalism. Legalism. When, when you speak about when the Bible says thou shalt or thou shalt not, when, when God's word teaches clearly the way in which we should live, and when we speak out against sinful living, then men and women want to say, oh, you're just being a legalist. For we're not under law, we're under grace. Well, grace is not licentiousness. Grace is not freedom to do whatever you want, regardless of what God has taught. No, to be under grace is to want more and more each day the things that God wants for you. To recognize that that is the best plan, the best path, uh, the best expression of love ever is that God has given you instruction for living a life to His glory and to your benefit. And when we say you ought not be living in sin, people will say you're a legalist. But no, a legalist would be one who would impose religious obligations that go beyond Scripture. A legalist would be one who imposes religious obligations that go beyond Scripture and to proclaim as God's word that which God has never said. And and we all can picture examples of that in terms of dress, in terms of behavior, in terms of, you know, if music's playing, if you tap your foot with a little bit too much gusto, that's dancing. And we all know that a dancing foot and a praying knee can't live on the same leg. At least that's what some would say. And we have to ask, has God really said this? Is, is, it, is it good you know, cultural wisdom? Maybe, possibly. But has God said it? And it is never okay to say God has said when He has not said it. It is never okay to put words in God's mouth. What we need to do is put great weight in what God has said. To know what God has said and to live what God has said rather than 
adhering to the traditions that we're just comfortable with. Now, in our denomination, we have traditions. And, and these traditions are, are fine. I, I love them. I, I love so many things. Tradition has it. Many of our churches have pews. And we walk into some churches, and they don't have pews. And we look and we go, that can't be much of a church now, can it? We walk into a church and we see choir lofts up front and we think, wow, okay, that's something I'm familiar with. We walk other churches and they got a praise team. They've got other instruments. We go, mm, that can't be much of a Christian church at all. Now, there's, there's great wisdom in using pews. They're fine. They're comfortable. They're, they're stationary. They're, they're, they're fine. Choirs are wonderful. I love choral music. But, but we cannot take traditions, no matter how good, and elevate them to Scripture. We have to recognize that God has said what He has said, and just because we like some additions that we might put to it, we can't put them on level with Scripture. And the problem is, it's not that we're elevating them up to Scripture, it's that, unfortunately, we bring Scripture down. We bring Scripture down and we think far too little of it. We need to know God's Word. And in terms of, of the washing of hands, uh, we see the instruction that was given, but... In terms of that, it was that Jesus and his disciples were not obeying the traditions and the traditional way that people had been taught to do that. We think about it in terms of uh, the way that we maybe administer the sacraments or other things, things of importance, things of some good, uh, some good wise tradition that we have, believing it to be faithful, but recognizing there's differences of opinion and agreement. We, we need to recognize that we can't take our opinions and put them on par with God's holy, inerrant, and unfailing word. First problem is we think too little of Scripture and God's word when we put our traditions up there with it. Second thing is we think far too little of true worship. Far too little of true worship because look what Jesus says. As the disciples are challenged on this. And when Jesus is directly asked in verse 5, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? And Jesus then doesn't argue with them about hand washing. He argues with them about worship. He, he confronts them about their hearts. And this is what he said. Isaiah got it right. Isaiah got it right. When he wrote, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That is a, a rather eloquent way of expressing a very horrible truth. A very eloquent way of expressing a, a, a horrible truth of, of, of dire implication. To honor with your lips while your heart is far from you. He goes on to quote and say, in vain do they worship me teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. In vain do they worship me. He calls them hypocrites. Strong word. It's strong then. It's strong now to be a hypocrite. And we are all to some degree hypocritical. We know the truth. We fail to do the truth. Paul says that in Romans chapter 7. I know what I should do. I fail to do it. I know what I shouldn't do. I find myself doing that. He says, a wretched man that I am, who's going to free me from this body of death? He says, I, I live hypocritically. We, we do. But to be hypocrites means that your life is detached. 
Your life is two-faced. That, that these people, he says, honor me with their lips. That means they are the loud singers. They're the ones that are up front. They're the ones with the hands highest in the air. They're the ones with the most exuberant praise. They're the ones with the long, eloquent prayers. And Jesus says, but your hearts, your hearts aren't there. And what you're doing is all in vain. One pastor described what he considered to be the most terrifying passage of Scripture. And you'd think it might be something out of Revelation where you see dragons and Antichrist and things like that. As in a story that Jesus told. The story where many will come to me on that day and they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things? Didn't we, didn't we do all these things? Add, fill that in. Fill in Jesus' story as he describes it. Didn't we show up for worship? Didn't we have perfect attendance in Sunday school? Didn't we go out and cast out demons? Didn't we do all these things? And Jesus says, depart from me. Why? I never knew you. And I have to agree with this pastor. I don't want to live in such self-deception that I would stand there on that day fully expecting to embrace, be embraced by a Savior and to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. To have Jesus look at me and say, I don't know you. That's what Isaiah was talking about. He says, you can do the traditions you can, you, can, you can live a life that has a facade of faith about it. He says, but where is your heart? Where is your heart today? That, that's a question. If, if you, like I, listen to Jesus saying that there will be those who will stand there and He will say, depart from me for I never knew you. And you find that to be a horrifying reality that anyone would encounter that. Ask yourself today, where is my heart? When I gather for worship, where is my heart? Do I want to be here? Do I want to worship God? Do I want to love Him? Is this coming from a place of, of focus on God? Or am I a million miles away from here? Am I thinking about, if only Brandon would stop talking so I can get out of here, have lunch, and go play golf? And before our golfers get upset, you might go hunting. You might go for a walk. You might garden. But is that where your mind is? Is that where your heart is? Is that where your passions are? Or is it, I want to worship you while we're here. And when we leave, I want to keep on worshiping you, God. Where is your heart? Do you, do you seek after God? We, we saw that in the passage that we read out of Isaiah 55, didn't we? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he was near. There's, there's a time expectation on it. There's a limit to it. This idea of while he may be found for in that final day, that day when we see him face to face, there is no more time. Time is up. But today is that day that we might seek the Lord, that we might worship him as we should. And then Jesus, he points to a different occasion. He speaks to a different example, not talking about washing hands, but he says, all right, let's talk about something else. You have a fine way, he says in verse 9, of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. He says, what about what Moses said? Honor your father and mother. Pretty simple, isn't it? 
But here's what they had done. They had said, well, if money that's been set aside for the work of the Lord needs to be set aside for the work of the Lord, it would, well, it would be wrong for me to go and get the money that's been set aside for the work of the Lord to take care of my parents. It's for the temple. It's, it's set aside. We would think about that in, a, in, a, in an accounting way as keeping things beyond arm's length or arm's reach, right? You, you, you keep it a step away. Uh, and what they're saying is if we declare it korban was the phrase they used, well, then I can't spend it this way. But what they did, many did so that they didn't have to spend it on mom and dad and their needs. You know, mom and dad always have needs. They said, you know what? Everything I've got is korban. It's all korban. I'd like to help you. That money's been earmarked for something else. You wouldn't want me to go take it from the Lord now, would you? And Jesus looks and says, oh, where is your heart? Where is your heart? Moses says, honor your father and your mother. Love them. Moses said, whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. And he says, what you have done, verse 13, is you have made void the word of God because of your tradition. That you are not worshiping your heart. Your heart is far. It's the way it's cold. It's dead. It needs to be enlivened. Now, that's the wonderful thing. That's the wonderful thing about the gospel is that it is about the heart change. It's about not changing the outside and making the inside follow suit. It's about changing the heart. Because that's what Jesus goes on to talk about. And it's that idea of sin and, by implication, righteousness. And that's the third thing we see, is we think too little about sin. And we think too little about righteousness on the flip side of that. Jesus goes on to talk about this. He says, you need to understand that nothing that you eat can defile you. Now, again... There's things that you can eat that you shouldn't eat. And I've tried haggis. But, but what he's saying is, it's not the food that you take in that's sinful. It's what comes out. And even he gets a little bit crude here, not in a sinful way, but he gets very pointed with them. And he says, do you not understand that whatever you eat, it doesn't go to your heart, it goes to your belly. And after it goes to your belly, you, you expel it. Right? You, you leave it out in the woods. And what he's doing is not the food that makes you unclean. What he's saying is that there's nothing out there that makes you to sin. It's in here. The enemy is within. I like watching crime shows. I like watching mysteries. I've been watching, I like Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is always a lot of fun, and there's the new Sherlock is, is a lot of fun to watch. And, uh, and, and in, the, in these mysteries, uh, one of the, the common themes that always comes back is, is the idea that, that the, the crime was accomplished because there was somebody on the inside, right? It was an inside job. There was a, the, the watchman in the bank. He was the one that let them in to rob the bank. It was the, the accountant there. He was the one that was able to, to make it happen. There was somebody on the inside that enabled the crime to take place. And we need to understand that sin is an inside job. Sin is an inside job. It's not that the world breaks in and makes us to sin. They have... Now, the world can set up occasion where it's easy to sin. But we would not sin where the accomplice not already within us. And that's our sinful heart. And that's what Jesus is saying. We need to understand that sin is not something that can be thrust upon us. You see, the, the Pharisees, we saw that in the, 
and the, the tale of the Good Samaritan, that idea that the, uh, the priest and the Levite walking down the Jericho Road wouldn't stop to help the man that had been beaten and left for dead because they might accidentally become unclean in doing so. And but that idea that, that you could accidentally be defiled, you could accidentally sin. And that's not the case. It's when we deliberately go against God's Word. We think too little of sin. We think too little of righteousness. Jesus says this, We need to understand that out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting. Jesus lists at great length wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within. The defilement is there. It is Jesus Christ and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that brings and gets rid of that defilement, purifies that. Create in me, David prays, a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit within me. We desire that new heart, that cleansed heart, that forgiven heart, that purified heart. You see, sin is more than staying away from bad food, and holiness is more than just eating clean food. Food can't change the heart. It's the heart that really matters It's what Ezekiel says. He says, I will give you a new heart, the Lord says. I will give you a new heart. And my friends, if you have that new heart, then guard it. Guard it, protect it, feed it God's word. Feast upon it that it would be shaped and molded in the pattern of God. But make it to feed upon the word of God and not simply the traditions with which we are most comfortable. The Pharisees were trying to find fault with Jesus. And they said, why aren't you doing things the way we do it? Next time I'm pumping gas, it needs to be my prayer before I get out of the car to start pumping it. That when that car comes by, that that might be the person the Lord has brought into my life today that I would meet, show an interest in. That that would be the person that today my heart could go out to. As I do believe Jesus' heart would go out. And that I would not dismiss because they were not holding to the traditions of this man. Let it be our prayer today that it would never be said of us that our lips honor And our hearts are far. Let it never be said of us that our worship is in vain. But let us draw near and seek the Lord while he may be found. And call upon him. Because he has come near. Pray with me now. Lord, this passage of scripture is tough. But we're thankful for it. Forgive us, Lord God, for painting up descriptions and drafting up lists that go beyond your word and elevating them to the status of your word. But Father, may we know what you have said. May we hear what you have taught. Father, may we not find ways of accomplishing our own desires by our own devices and calling it holy. But Lord, may we embrace what you have taught us. May we worship you with our hearts and may our lips follow suit. And Father, may we recognize that this world does not make me to sin. Neither does Satan, though his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. 
or the enemy that I fight is a sinful heart that I pray that you would subdue more and more each day. Lord, I pray that we would see, know, and love the heart of our Savior. Father, that we would not be so worried about washing our hands in exactly the right way, whatever tradition we equate to that. But Lord God, that we would want to know, to live, and to proclaim Jesus Christ. And all we say and do for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.